Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. My name is David Chen. I'm the managing editor at SlashFilm.com and the host of the Slash Filmcast. And joining me today, he is the man who played Bud Penrod in the ABC original series, Desperate Housewives, Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today, sir? I am doing very good. I have to alert you, David, that when I got the script of Desperate Housewives... I do not recall being called Bud Penrod ever, ever, ever. I was in my script. I was called Insurance Man, and as people who've listened to this podcast, uh, um, the X Factor know that's that episode uh, thirty-three. We should say episode thirty-three. I am not as an actor. I am always wary of roles that don't have names. Uh, like playing cop number two or masochistic gay man. Usually those parts are not fleshed out, so to speak. Uh, when I got this script, it said insurance man. Now, now you say my name was what, David? Bud, Bud Penrod. Bud Penrod. You know, uh, note to actors. There is another category between having a category of uh, a part with a name like Bud Penrod and a category being insurance man. And that is this little category in the middle where the writers think they gave you a name, Bud Penrod, but in their head you are the insurance man. And consequently, David, as history has borne out, I did not recur on Desperate Housewives. Bud Penrod only made one visitation to the ladies up on Wisteria Drive. That is a shame, sir. I would have loved to see more Bud Penrod, if only so that I could repeat his name over and over again. Yeah, over and over again, please. Oh, uh, David. Yes, sir. Uh, this was your first Fourth of July as an American citizen, right? That's that is correct. I recently did you became do an American anything, citizen. Uh, strange. Well, I did go down to Storrow Drive uh, in Boston, Massachusetts, where I live, and it's the one day a year where they shut down Storrow Drive so that people can sort of hang out there and wait for the fireworks in the Charles River. Uh, and it felt really cool to go to Storrow Drive, which is like normally one of the busiest uh, sort of streets in Boston, and have it be completely empty except for you know kids hanging out, college students playing beer pong. Families waiting on towels for the fireworks to start. It felt like the beginning of uh, Vanilla Sky or I Am Legend, uh, except not in New York, in Boston, and therefore not as cool. How about and you, also Stephen? Not as many vampires. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, Stephen. How about you? What did you do for for July Fourth? Well, David, uh, you cannot see because this is, of course, audio. But I am now covered head to toe with uh, gigantic hives. Uh, and and I have these hives partly because what I did yesterday is play golf. Uh, golf can create hives a lot of different ways. Uh, being in the sunshine, they say, creates hives. Uh, sweating creates hives. Uh, stress, like the stress of golf, can create hives. Uh, the chemical sort of insecticide they lay everywhere can not only uh, create hives, but maybe even make you grow a second head. I don't know. And I was also playing with my friend Richard, and that can make you uh, grow, grow hives. But, you know, this reminds me very much, actually, of the podcast, because, uh, believe it or not, David, this podcast tangentially involves golf. I can't believe uh, that a topic we randomly apparently brought up at the beginning <laughs> would be related to the topic. It's, it's right. shocking. And, and just, I just want to do a, uh, a call-out beforehand for people who listen to Tobolowsky Files today. 
I am highly medicated because of the hives. I am uh, in a sea of uh, Benadryl right now. And so if, if I start hallucinating during the show, you'll understand why. Uh, but I just wanted to mention that while I was playing, I, I recognized that golf is a lot like life. Well, let me it's just stop you right. Let me stop you right there, Stephen. Before you yeah. begin, I should also say that for maximum enjoyment of this episode, yes. you should check out Tobolowski Files, uh, the episode titled "It's Not My Dog," episode twenty-three. Because and heartbroken. heartbroken and heartbroken, episode twenty-one. Those will become important later on. So download those episode twenty-one and twenty-three. Anyway, sorry, Stephen. Continue. Yeah, what I was saying. <laughs> What I was saying, David, I realized that golf is a lot like life. It is an incredibly frustrating game. And the thing I hate most about golf is that it illustrates more than anything else I can think of the difference between one's intentions and actuality. You see, I always intend to hit it straight. I always think I will, and I almost never do. So I pull my driver out on that first tee, and I think, Stephen, you don't have to kill it. Easy does it. Just breathe. Put it out there a couple hundred yards. So I line my ball up. So far, so good. I breathe out. I focus. And that's just about how far good goes. The odds are in the next few seconds, I will put a shot either into the trees on the left or the power plant on the right. When my 15-year relationship with Beth ended, I definitely was in the trees. I shanked it. And several things happen when your life blows up. Like golf, and I promise for non-golfers this analogy is almost over, the first thing that goes through your mind is that you've lost your ball. I lost mine, and I started going to psychiatrists. When you slice it into the wilderness, you also realize at that very moment you'll probably not end up with a very good score for the day. And at this point, a very interesting thing happens. You're stuck coming up with a new system of keeping score so the adventure doesn't seem like a waste of time. What do you do with a terrible shot? Some people pretend they didn't hit it. They put a new ball down. They do it all over again with the same result. Some people cheat, and they run down to the trees, and they kick it or throw it back out onto the fairway, while others play it where it lays. I fall into that third category, not because I'm exceedingly honest, because I'm not. I just never cared that much about the scorecard. The day I realized I had to move out from the house Beth and I had lived in, it happened fast. I only took what I could put in my car. No massive move. I left a lot of things behind. I left the stereo and some of my records. I left the photos of Montana and some of my clothes, and sadly... I left my dear dog, the pooch. I left behind all of the plans I failed to accomplish and all the future jokes I wanted to whisper to Beth at a party. I left behind any hopes of living the life I had envisioned for the last 15 years. Moving out is not the easy choice. You do it because it's the only choice. So I looked up rentals in the area. I had saved up some money and realized this was the rainy day I had heard about since I was a little boy. It's true. I had been saving birthday money since I was five. 
I had saved over $100 by the time I was 12. I worked for my uncle Jaime in Dallas during the summers from age 13 to 15 and saved some of that money. Well, truthfully, I spent most of it on two marvelous possessions. A guitar that I still have in my closet and a pool table, which I hope still may be entertaining someone else in this world. But there was a lot of money left over I never touched. Partly because whenever I wanted to spend money, mom and dad would look at me very disapprovingly and tell me some gem of folk wisdom like, a fool and his money are soon parted. I never told mom, but I never really knew what that meant. I never got the syntax that the money was parted from the fool. I always thought it was like some Quentin Tarantino movie where the fool and the money is chainsawed in two, but it worked. I didn't spend the money. They also said, save your money for a rainy day. Now that I understood. But this was L.A. It never rained here. So I had to play it where it lays. I grasped the metaphor and broke my piggy bank. When I drove down that driveway from Beth for the last time, that was the day I would spend my life savings. The newspaper ad said, luxury two-bedroom, two-bath, large living room, deck and swimming pool, cable TV, Japanese tub. I had no idea what a Japanese tub was, but I wanted it bad. It was clearly the most expensive choice. I didn't care. I was still young, and I still believed that you could heal a broken heart with luxury. The house was just down the road from where I lived with Beth, actually, just a few blocks. But the important thing was I could go to the same grocery store. When you're depressed, never underestimate the importance of going to a store where you know where all the food is. Grief, plus wandering through a strange store looking for mustard, can kill. I made an appointment to see the house that afternoon. The landlord was a fellow actor who was looking for someone to take over the house payments while he continued to audition and live in the guest house over the garage. He made the mistake of asking me why I was looking for a house. I began to tell him the story of love gone bad. I started with the college years, holding hands during Van Cliburn. I was just about to head off to the University of Illinois when his eyes glazed over. He interrupted me. He was very kind and sympathetic, but he said what he meant to ask me was how long did I figure I would want to stay. I told him I could commit to six months, sold. It was at that moment I learned a very important lesson in life. No one is really interested in how you got there. They just want to know how long you want to stay. It made perfect sense. The big lie of our culture is that people want to hear other people talk about themselves. Nothing could be further from the truth. That's why you have to pay shrinks to sit there and take it. So my little carload of stuff vanished into that gigantic home. All of my clothes fit not only in one of the three closets of the bedroom, but it all fit on five hangers. And now I was confronted with a new problem in my life, living alone. I had never lived alone except when I worked out of town. And even when I worked in Buffalo, I was put up in a building with all the other actors who were working on the show and with my best friend Bob living in the crow's nest above me. Okay. Okay. I wasn't completely alone. I was seeing Anne, which is a euphemism for I was dating Anne. 
which is a euphemism for I was seeing Anne. But she had her own apartment on the other side of town. Like it or not, this was a new beginning. The first thing I became aware of in starting this new chapter in my life, I had no furniture. I made a list. I needed to buy a bed. I needed to buy dishes. I needed to buy food. So the first thing I bought was a stereo. It seemed like an error in priorities until you consider Van Cliburn's comment that you only need three things in life, mathematics, physical education, and music, mathematics to plan the journey, physical education for strength to make the journey, and music to make the journey worthwhile. I went and bought a huge stereo and speakers and set them up in the living room, and I bought my first CDs ever. Yes. This was the summer of 1987, and the CD format was new. Wow. I bought six discs that first day, five CDs of Mozart and one of Motown. The one hitch in my musical choice was the Motown album. You see, CDs are much smaller than record albums, and the type on the back is very, very small, and and I didn't look carefully, and I... I didn't pay attention, and I didn't realize that the name Motown around the world was a tip-off that this album was not performed in the original language. I discovered too late that I had now a recording in Italian of what becomes of the brokenhearted and my girl in German. At any rate, I had music. I cranked up the volume, and it worked. Music always makes no place into someplace. Now I needed a bed, and I was surprised that it embarrassed me to go to the bed store. It was almost like buying leotards and a dance belt for the first time. The salesman asked me what I was looking for, and I almost began the story of love gone bad again. I stopped myself. And then I almost started telling him the story of working for my uncle Jaime as a teenager, and this was the rainy day, and I was breaking the piggy bank, and I stopped myself again. Finally, I gave in to the impulse of unwanted autobiography and said that I was newly single and needed a bed. I needed something comfortable enough to stay in all day because I was very depressed and sleeping a lot, but not too fancy. So if I decided to have my meals there, I wouldn't have to worry about dropping food in the sheets. He directed me to a futon. He said this was the perfect choice because it was washable, which meant nothing to me because I had no intention of washing an entire bed. I would burn it first. He did use a selling point. I'll share with you. It was very interesting. <laughs> he said the futon was good because it was low to the ground. Low to the ground. I had never considered this an advantage in bed buying before. He pointed out that I could crawl into bed if I wanted. Again, I hadn't pictured myself on all fours crawling through the bedroom, but the idea intrigued me. He mentioned another advantage of the futon was that if you fell out of bed, you were only six inches from the ground and not three feet. You would probably never get hurt. I told him that I didn't usually fall out of bed, at least not since kindergarten, but it sounded great. You could never be too safe in bed. I asked how soon it could be delivered. He said, how about now? I said, sold. Now I needed food. It's always interesting when you're out of town on a job what you choose to eat in your own hotel room. 
But it's somewhat of a cheat because, you know, the film company will mostly be providing you with your three squares. When you are totally on your own, you get the real story of your relationship to eating. First thing I bought in that store was a bag of Fritos. Then I bought a six-pack of Rolling Rock beer. I bought a jar of pickles. I realized at this point I didn't have the fixings for a proper dinner, so I concentrated on the four main food groups. I bought a dozen eggs, a box of cereal, a half gallon of milk, a loaf of bread, mustard, a package of sliced turkey, and six apples as an homage to good health. On my way to the checkout stand, I grabbed a box of donuts. Now I was ready for the journey. Anne came over that night and looked in my fridge. She said, would you like to go to the store? I could cook you something for dinner. I didn't have the guts to tell her I had just come from the store a half an hour ago, and she was looking at everything. I said, sure. So we headed back to the store for more grocery shopping. We pushed the cart down the familiar aisles. She grabbed strange and amazing things off the shelf. She said, I can broil some lamb chops. Do you like mint jelly with that? I said, uh, sure. She said, I can saute some Brussels sprouts and carrots. Maybe make one of those salads with wild greens and arugula. I could bake an Irish soda bread for dessert. It's simple and not too sweet. Her lips kept moving, but I stopped hearing the words. I did recognize she was speaking a language I was not familiar with. The language of a home. The language of a relationship. I knew at that moment I was grateful that I wasn't going to be eating donuts for dinner. But looking back, I see that Anne had come over that evening as a strange visitor from another world, speaking the language of the future. Relationships are a lot like golf. Both can lead to sex. People who watch movies and listen to rock and roll music are under the impression that sex is a good thing. Actually, it's one of the main reasons why relationships are difficult. Sex is a very confusing thing. I read a scientific article that says when a person senses the pheromones of the opposite sex, the brain switches off its judgment center. And that's how things start. They usually go downhill from there. I think one reason why sex is so confusing and therefore dangerous is at the start of a relationship, it means different things to men and to women. I often imagine there's this invisible contract that floats between two people before they have sex. They're both so blinded by passion, they never read the other person's contract. They just sign the bottom line and it, they assume it's the same as theirs. But it's not. Men and women have totally different contracts. I think a man's contract reads something like this. Hello, we're going to do this thing because it is very much fun. You seem to be an easygoing person like me who would not necessarily want my phone number or call me at work in the near future. We agree to adore each other for the next about 12 minutes, after which time I may fall asleep. During the slumber period, you may either, one, find it endearing, or two, take that opportunity to make your escape. 
You will agree to overlook my various flaws and personal hygiene issues for a period of not less but certainly extending to 21 days inclusive. I agree not to bother you in the future unless, of course, you want more sex, in which case you could call me anytime, anywhere, including at work. A woman's contract may read something like this. Two times I'm yours, three times you're mine. Okay, this is a highly condensed version. But the essential element is that while men work hard to forget, women, without any effort at all, remember everything. Men by nature become creatures of faith because they spend their entire lives praying that they will get lucky. Women don't have to worry about luck. They decide. They decide when and where and whom. It's only afterwards they begin praying. The basis of a woman's decision to have sex with a man can be very complicated. It could be any one of the following. Nice eyes, nice aftershave, likes children, likes her children, makes her laugh, buys her beer, likes her cat, her cat likes him, watches Meg Ryan movies without constant provocation, reminds her of her father, reminds her of her teacher, is her teacher, reminds her of the young Paul Newman, reminds her of the old Paul Newman, makes her feel loved and reborn into a world of hope and promise. The basis of a man's choice is usually, she let me. It's into this confusing world Anne and I were thrown. We had known each other for three years, had been friends for two, had been co-workers for one. Both of us were somewhat reticent about a relationship, not for any good reason, but just because we both had recent bad luck. Side note, the human mind is very interested in connecting random dots to see if they make a straight line, like from Thelma and Louise to Rita Rocks. When you connect a line that leads to failure and unhappiness, it can be very difficult to move forward with anything. You have to remember that you are the one who saw the dots. You are the one who drew the line. So you can draw another line. Unless, of course, you have sex and then you're cooked. Here's an example of how drawing a line between the dots can quickly become difficult. Anne had an apartment on the west side of town. What does it mean when she sleeps over with me? What does it mean when I sleep over with her? What does it mean if no one sleeps over and there's no phone call that day? Or there is a phone call but no invitation? Sex may have increased the intensity of our friendship but not the clarity. Poetry and songs are written about the intensity of relationships. But I'll bet you Juliet would have traded it all if Romeo gave her a little more clarity. One night, I was in bed eating pretzels, watching ESPN before ESPN had any good sports, back when they just had rodeo and arm wrestling and full contact karate. Anne called. She was very upset. She said she hoped she wasn't interrupting anything. I said, no. She asked me if I was entertaining someone, which I understood as code for trampling on the future. I said, no. She asked if she should come over. I said, yes. When I hung up the phone, I was hit with the realization. Relationships are not windshield wipers. There is no intermittent switch. You're either in one or you're not. If you are in a relationship, you've entered into a realm of a sort of giddy jeopardy because the energy between two people can never be wished away. It can either work to create or to destroy. How do you know the difference? 
The first measure is not how often someone says I love you, but how well you sleep at night. Anne started spending more and more time at my house. I was directing a film of the play I wrote, Two Idiots in Hollywood, and Anne was playing Cordelia in King Lear downtown at the Los Angeles Theater Center. Directing a film is very exhausting at work, especially if you're not used to the day-in and day-out stress of playing dodgeball with disaster. I had to work through the weekend, night shoots to boot. So I had felt like I had been at it for several 23-hour day shifts in a row. It was Monday, and I had wrapped early for a change, and a flood of joy washed over me. I would have a night off, a night off to relax, and what a night! Monday night football was airing the best game of the season. Jim McMahon and the Chicago Bears against John Elway and the Denver Broncos. Wow. Okay. I was going to take a bath in the Japanese tub, open a beer, maybe drink the beer in the Japanese tub. Uh, Then I was going to lie down on the futon and aim the air conditioner to blow up one leg of my pajamas and down the other. I could order Chinese to be delivered. This could be the night of the century. And then it hit me. It was Monday night. It was Anne's only night off after a four-show weekend. But wait a minute, wait a minute. I hadn't called her yet. And she may have thought that I was still working late. Maybe she would just be tired and go back to her place. Hmm. I stood and I contemplated the nature of windshield wipers pause. I stopped the water in the Japanese tub. I told myself, don't even think about it. This is non-negotiable. The evening would be spent with Anne. She would be exhausted from her weekend. This was her only night off. We would go out and eat at a nice restaurant. We would have a glass of wine, and then I would ask her to spend the night. And that's the way it was going to happen, Mr. I was in mid-pep talk for getting up for an evening that didn't include the Chicago Bears, and the front door opened, and it was Anne with an armful of groceries. She headed back to the kitchen and called out, You're home. I thought you would still be shooting. I said, No, no, we finished early. She said, Nice. I said, I thought maybe we should go out, celebrate this week. I mean, we got through it. Maybe we could go to Martoni's. Anne said, We could celebrate, but I figure you'd be tired from working all weekend, and I think it's Monday night. Monday night football is on, right? I thought I could roast a duck. We could have some wild rice and salad. I bought a bottle of wine. Why don't I just cook something here and we watch the game in bed? Pause. While I contemplate a new screen version of O. Henry's The Gift of the Magi, this one including Monday night football, a roast duck, and a futon. It's funny how we imagine that lifelong relationships have to be built on a mountaintop of moments so huge they're written across the sky in letters a mile wide. But I knew a skywriter once, and he told me the letters are just strategically placed puffs of smoke that are easily blown away. In reality, a life together is made of the simplest, smallest things. A rose petal saved in a book. A napkin with I love you written on it. An old piano key found in a music shop. I look back at our two decades together, (laughs) our two marriages, two children, three honeymoons. Anne and I both smile over that duck dinner, the futon, 
in the football game. Anne brought the duck back on the tray, climbed into bed. She said she had avoided football her whole life, and maybe if I explained the game to her, she would find it more enjoyable. Well, <laughs> we never made it through the first quarter. I was also happy to discover another advantage to the futon being low to the ground. It was easier to get rid of plates and wine bottles without breakage. Six months seemed to fly by. Before I knew it, my lease was coming to an end, and a new beginning was staring me in the face. I had to find yet a new place to live. But I wasn't in a panic this time. I did have the futon, I had the stereo, and I also had a new relationship. Sort of. I still wasn't sure of where I could go with emotional safety. I was still carrying a picture of dots crashing and burning in the back of my mind. One of the greatest victims of the end of a relationship is your own certainty. Part of me was so paralyzed by my past, I was more comfortable doing nothing but drift. So, in an attempt to gain control, I made a decision. Right or wrong, I was going to ask Anne to move in with me. We would pick our next home together. I had never been so nervous as that morning when Anne came into the kitchen for breakfast. She poured a cup of coffee. I stammered, Annie, I think it's pretty clear that we're growing closer and closer and not further and further apart. We're spending a lot of time together. What would you say about moving in with me? Anne looked up from her coffee. I couldn't read her expression at all. She took another sip and said, Stephen, I moved in two weeks ago. I, I, I said, you did? Anne nodded. Come here. Let me show you. She led me into the bedroom where she opened my other two closets, which were full of her clothes. She said, you were so busy with the movie that you never noticed, and it was hard to keep driving over the hill to change clothes. I said, so you want to go take a look at houses today? Anne said, let me finish my coffee. Anne and I found another place to rent within a week. It was a two-bedroom, two-bath in the Hollywood Hills. It had no yard. In fact, it had no ground. It hung over a cliff and was supported by iron poles. The view was stunning, unless you had vertigo. From the back balcony, you could see the Hollywood Bowl as well as the 100-foot vertical drop beneath you. What was really remarkable about the place was that the walls were painted absolutely cottage white. And consequently, the entire interior would change colors throughout the day, reflecting whatever the sky happened to be doing. On a rainy day, you could sit there in an entirely gray room and watch the city beneath you. And at sunset, you would be completely surrounded by a swirl of purple and scarlet. The only furniture we had was the futon and the stereo. We had high ceilings, so instead of buying a dining room table, we bought three very tall ficus trees in pots, and we set them up in the living room, and we ate our meals on a picnic blanket underneath them. Anne completed the move by bringing over her deranged cat, Coco, from her apartment. Coco was the reincarnation of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. The cat had only what I could describe as LSD flashbacks. She would be sitting calmly in your lap getting some pets, and then she would suddenly be in another movie. She would stare into space, start growling, arch her back, jump two feet straight up into the air, start batting at nothing visible, then wrestle with thin air, eventually losing, and running to hide under the futon. 
If that didn't add just the right amount of chaos to our lives, one afternoon I got a knock at my door. It was my good friend Richie. Apparently Beth had to leave town for an extended period of time to work on a play, and he wanted to know if I had room for one more. In the car behind him, I saw the pooch standing up in the front seat looking out the window. Richie laughed as I burst into tears. The car door was open and the pooch came running into the house, almost knocking me down. I sat down and was instantly poochified with whining and dog licks and kisses. The pooch quickly discovered Coco, the net result being that the cat finally had something real to fight. Maybe she was just psychic and knew the pooch was coming all along. But WrestleMania had officially commenced. Anne said not to worry. They would work it out. And they did, amazingly. After three days of nonstop fighting, Coco passed out exhausted in the living room. Pooch pawed at her to get up and fight like a manx. But the poor cat couldn't even lift her head. So with no other options, Pooch lay down with her. The two of them curled up and slept it off, and when they woke up, they were inseparable. They found the balance between intensity and clarity. Occasionally, in the evenings that fall, we would be able to see the fireworks at the Hollywood Bowl from our living room. Anne would roast a chicken. I would set out a blanket on the floor under the ficus, and we would have a picnic. Just the four of us, dining beneath the trees with no foundation. That was Playing It As It Lays, a series of stories by Stephen Dobolowski. Stephen, as we like to do each week, uh, we like to read an email that people have written to you uh, talking about how they've been affected or uh, how they, what they've thought of a recent episode of the Tobolowski Files. Uh, so let's go here. Hello, my name is Matthew. I'm a student filmmaker, and naturally my love and interest in all things has led me to check out SlashFilm.com. And for the past few months, I've been checking Slash Film every day and once a week seeing this thing called the Tobolowski Files pop up. Never, <laughs> never checked it. Didn't care. <laughs> I had listened to many of the other Slash Film casts and found them to be pretty boring. Hey, thanks, Matthew. Appreciate it. Yeah, that. thank you. Finally, I decided to check out the Tobolowski Files and I've absolutely fallen in love. I apologize for not knowing who you were before, but when you live your life, you learn things. And the time before you learn these things don't really matter. Anyway, it takes me about two days to get through each podcast uh, because the only time I can listen is right before I go to bed and I usually fall asleep. And trust me, it's not because they aren't interesting. Regardless of why, I just finished listening to episode 34 and I felt absolutely compelled to write an email and let you know how much I appreciated that entire episode. I teared up at points. I laughed at points. Ran the whole gamut. 
I want to thank you so much for sharing that story with everyone else. Whether or not anyone else takes anything at all from Abe's story, I will most likely never know. But really, that doesn't matter. Not to me, at least. It may to you, though. All I know is in about five hours, I'm going to go into my job that is normally a great source of sheer frustration and all the reasons why I have little hope in human beings. And I'm going to think about Abe's story and my job and my, as of right now, trivial life probably won't be so bad. Thanks again for all your wonderful stories. And please, please, please keep them up because the days of the masterful raconteur such as yourself are all but faded away. Well, Ted, days of the masterful raconteur both yeah, made me feel like I was dressed like a Mississippi gambler on a riverboat. But it, it made me very happy and very sad at the same time. I mean, oh, thank you very much, first of all. Was, that, was his name Matt? Yes. Thank you very much, Matt. That's a very dear letter, and and I hope your your job becomes more interesting. Don't compare it to Auschwitz. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> I think that's a good good idea. Um, so uh, so Stephen, we also want to actually g- give a shout out to uh, famed TV journalist Alan Seppenwall at HitFix.com, who uh, wrote up a very nice feature about the Double Ask Files. Uh, and I think everyone here should go check it out, right? That is fantastic. I thank you very much. Uh, please check it out. It's it's great, great story. Right. Um, I think probably an easy way to find it is by just googling Sepinwall, S E P I N W A L L, or obviously just going to hitfix.com and checking out Alan's page on the TV section. But uh, well worth a read and an honor to be profiled uh, by one of the best journalists in, in the country, uh, in the entertainment industry. Anyway, let's wrap things up, Stephen. If people want to write into you, how can people reach you? Uh, best place is at stephentobolowski at gmail.com. And that's S-T-E-P-H-E-N. T is in Tom, O-B is in boy, O-L-O-W-S-K-Y the Russian spelling. And also, I'm at Twitter, at twitter.com slash Tobolowsky. And now, I am at Facebook. And thank you guys so much for writing me in both places. It's fun to communicate that way. That's at facebook.com slash Stephen Tobolowsky. Very cool. If you want to hear more of my work, you can find me at twitter.com slash Dave Chensky. That's Dave Chen, S-K-Y, or slash filmcast.com. Tune in next week for another new episode Thank you guys for listening. Adios. Yeah. Well, I-